Welcome to the Data Skeptic Podcast. I'm here with my guest, Nikki Afanasiadu. Hi. Hey, thanks for joining me. Nice to be here. So we're going to talk a little bit about personalized medicine today, but I thought we could start with you just giving me a bit on your background um, academically and what you're working on now. Yes, I'm a researcher, currently a postdoc at New York University, and I'm a specialist in next generation sequencing, which is the technology that is bringing us all these possibilities with personalized medicine. Very exciting. What got you into it? Chance, I guess. I was working <laughs> on uh, something else, typical biological research on the bench, wet stuff, and then the experiment required that I do some uh, genomic sequencing, and that's how I got in. <laughs> awesome. So maybe we could start, uh, a lot of my listeners I think are more like computer science-y types. Maybe we could give your you know, high-level definition of what personalized medicine actually is. High-level? I was thinking of actually giving an example oh, yeah. to explain uh, what personalized medicine is and uh, yeah, where it can get us. Let's think of uh, one of the most well-studied diseases, which is currently cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, cancer actually comes in many different types, and everyone probably is familiar. We talk about pancreatic cancer, lung cancer, uh, uh, brain cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, so already people are f aware that there are different types of cancer, or, although the cancer is an umbrella term to mean a growth in your body that interferes with the, the functions of your body. Mm -hmm. So let's keep in mind that there are different types of cancer, but also we now know after all this research that every individual has its own version of a particular type. Mm -hmm. So we know there are at least five different types of breast, can breast cancer. And what determines what type this cancer will be is really the genetic, the underlying genetics of the person. Mm -hmm. So that's where personalized medicine comes in. And uh, based on this genetic background of the affected individual, we're trying to go in, in a specific mechanism that has been altered or that is not working very well and give rise to the problem, and specifically target this mechanism that in, in the individual is not working well mm -hmm. and treat that. So just to see if I kind of have a good understanding, uh, when you say there's five types of breast cancer, could it be that uh, for someone of type 1, uh, treatment A is very good, and for someone of type 5, treatment E is very good, but giving type E to person 1 would not be a, a successful? Exactly. Gotcha. Exactly. Can you do like a biopsy on the tumor to know which type they have, or is it purely genetic? Yes, that's what we're trying to do. I have to say early on that uh, in our discussion that mm -hmm. uh, we're still in the very early stages of personalized medicine, mm -hmm. and we're even in the very early stages of understanding how our genome is organized. Mm -hmm. uh, the genome project might have finished, uh, might, might have been completed. Uh, this happened 2001. Mm -hmm. However, we're still trying to understand what it all means. Yeah. So let's keep that in mind. We don't have all the answers. We actually have very few answers, but it's very exciting still that I think is going to give very great results in the next decade or so. Yeah. I'm trying to understand a lot of what it means myself um, and not having uh, much of a medical or biology background. Sometimes it's a struggle. So I thought that'll probably be true of a lot of my listeners. Um, so maybe I, I could kind of give you 
the way a data scientist looks at genetics, and you tell me where my analogy works and where it breaks down. If that's all right. It. Yep. So computers, we all know it's all binary code, zeros and ones. We have something sort of similar in the genetic code, all the base pairs, but there are four combinations, right? It's A with T it's and G with C. Yeah. Yes. So if, if we just look at one side, once it's kind of cut in half, it's like a base four number, um, whereas exactly. binary is base two. And then if I understand right, uh, every kind of three base uh, pairs uh, forms a, is it a codon? Oh, yeah. And, <laughs> and this was actually something really cool is that uh, there are something like 56 unique codons. Um, and 64. So, oh, 64, exactly. All right. Because, yeah, that... The, you, it would take four bits uh, of a four, or it's four a digits. It's a combination of four in trees, right? Yeah, to be able to... Uh, so it's like nature found the most efficient number to make a codon. If it had been one extra base pair, it would have been wasteful. Actually, of, the, of all the possible codons, mm -hmm. all the possible codons only encode the 20 amino acids. Actually, nature is even more clever than that, so mm -hmm. it allows for some degeneracy if something goes wrong. Ah, interesting. So... Um, if I were to kind of then take the analogy a little bit further, each codon then is like a single instruction in a computer program. Um, and those instructions, the output of those programs would be proteins. Do I have that right? A strain, a string of amino acids gives you one protein. I would tend to consider that the bit of information is the protein. Uh, the protein can go wrong because some amino acid within it gotcha. is wrong. And then what tells the proteins where to go? Where is that information encoded? Okay, so you are absolutely right about the codons and how proteins are encoded. Mm -hmm. But when we're talking about genome-wide information, we need to take into consideration that of the whole genome, which is uh, 3 billion pages, mm -hmm. only 1 to 2% encodes for proteins. Mm. The rest is non-coding. So the rest doesn't fall into the category that every three nucleotides will give you one specific bit of information. So these non-coding uh, regions of the genome are either uh, uh, regulatory, which mm -hmm. is exactly the answer to your question. So there are these regulatory regions that either tell, uh, give the instruction of whether this specific gene needs to be expressed or not, but also give you all this other information about the regulation, the localization, et cetera, et cetera. And one thing, though, that's, that's very different where the analogy certainly breaks down is that genetic codes are very resilient. If I go into a computer program and I change one little bit, probably it won't even run or certainly some aspect of it won't work at all. Whereas you can flip a whole bunch of uh, bits in a genetic sequence and you still pretty much get a functioning species, if I understand right. Yes, within limits. <laughs> <laughs> you can go beyond the point of no return. <laughs> mm -hmm. So then, you know, we know from generation to generation there's certain mutations. So I look a bit like my parents with some random variation. But um, one thing I, I'm kind of confused about is how do we say... So if, if we describe genetics as a really, really long number made up, uh, you know, in base four... How do we know which numbers are humans, which numbers are mice, which numbers are nothing? I'm not sure I understand this analogy. So, <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, no problem. Uh, it's probably a weak analogy. Uh, 
any anyone's own personal genome you can describe as one really really long number i presume right if you say i take their whole the sequence of okay yes yes like in the yes i understand so yeah. i have a unique number you have a unique number and our numbers are different but they're sim more similar my number and your number are more similar than my number and my pet amazon parrot's number that's correct how do we define it, or can we define what a species is just based on those numbers? Like in this range, it's, or, or am I thinking about it all wrong? No, actually your question is very insightful. Uh, the definition of a species, uh, I'm afraid we don't really, most of the species are defined uh, based on how they look and the anatomical characteristics. That's the mm -hmm. truth. Now in the molecular age, we are entering, uh, we have entered the era where we are defining species according uh, to the sequence, but we're not looking to the whole genome. Mm -hmm. We are actually looking at particular regions of the genome that... Uh, Use depending on how close, closely related the species are, mm -hmm. uh, we might want to look into regions of the genome that are very different in the different species that uh, mutate very frequently. Mm -hmm. high, they, as we say, they have high mutation rate. Mm -hmm. Or if we're talking about more distant species, we're looking, we're looking into uh, parts of the genome uh, that are more stable and evolution has taken care of us. So the way this works is that pro uh, regions of the genome that encode proteins that are very basic for all types of life, like the ribosome, which is the machine in the cell mm -hmm. that uh, translates the genetic code into the functional protein, which mm -hmm. is the end result. This is so specialized and so universally needed that it can, evolution cannot afford to change it too much. It's mm -hmm. already optimized. You look at it like that. On the other half, on the other uh, part, uh, if there is a protein that uh, makes uh, some specific feature of the species, or if it's a protein characteristic, let's say, of primates, which is us and all, the, all our ape-like relatives, mm -hmm then uh, this will be a good uh, region of the genome to study to identify the different uh, primate species. Ah, so we can say that per species there's sort of areas of interest that uh, where interesting things are going on in the genome and maybe the rest of it's all kind of boring in terms of mutation and variation for that species. For comparison, yes. Right, right. Of, depends on the group of the species and how closely related. So I, I may want to come back and talk a little more about genetics later, but I thought I'll try and keep on course a little bit and uh, ask a little bit about uh, personalized medicine. So I've heard it said that personalized medicine enables more efficient and effective clinical trials. And I'm wondering if you couldn't help me understand why that's true. Yes. Uh, before I answer that question, if I can, I, I, yeah. I would like to explain uh, how we are currently develop how we currently develop drugs. So yeah, what happens is some researcher like me in the lab identifies a molecular mechanism, a cellular pathway that, when is perturbed, causes the disease. So that's step one: identify what happens in the cell to to cause the disease. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, the second step is to find the chemical compounds or the chemical compounds that can actually stop this uh, aberrant pathway from occurring. And this is a drug. Mm -hmm. uh, then, having identified the drug that affects a specific molecular mechanism, we're going into clinical trials. And this is multiple rounds of clinical trials that are testing for two things. One thing is that uh, the actual drug doesn't cause harm. We mm -hmm. don't want a, a drug that will cure cancer, but will kill uh, the liver. Uh, mm -hmm. And the second is that uh, the, the drug needs, needs to be actually curing the disease. So these, right. these, these, two are th these two things are tested in clinical trials. Mm -hmm. So personalized medicine, um, uh, let's go back to the cancer example. Sure. Let's think uh, that we have a drug Mm -hmm. that uh, really is very good at uh, targeting a very specific type of cancer, and it's really a good, very good possibility for uh, cancer patients worldwide that have this specific type of cancer. Mm -hmm. Now, if this, uh, if, this pain, if this type of cancer is very rare, and only, let's say, 1% or 1,000 of the population carry the specific genetic underlying mechanism, you want to actually tailor your clinical trials so that you include, not as the control, but you include as uh, the affected group, people that actually carry the mutation. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, the drug might be dropped, although it would be a good drug for this very small percentage gotcha. of, of the people. Mm -hmm. Uh, and this is good both for the patients, of course, and for the companies that have spent all this time and effort developing the drug. They don't want the, their money to go down the drain right. because of bad calculation. Having, having said that, there is, of course, uh, potential problems with that. Right. Because, uh, as I said earlier, uh, clinical trials also test uh, for potential adverse effects of the drug. Mm -hmm. So someone uh, could think that... Uh, if you cherry pick your uh, patients, they might not show some uh, adverse effect in, res in, in response to the drug that might be widespread in the population. Right. And this has actually been shown. I'm not sure about which drug it was, but there is one case reported actually that this has happened. So how As do I you... said, yes, yeah, sorry. Oh, I was just going to ask about how they end up detecting that. So presumably... Um, it, let's assume it wasn't terribly malicious, then the group picked people afflicted with some very specific illness and maybe also of those picked those that had some uh, like correlated uh, genetic property which would make them resilient to whatever side effect there would be. Um, but And then you might only see that later when you try it on people who don't have that correlated uh, genetic strength. Um, so... Uh, I guess what I'm asking is how would you then establish that later? Would it be a secondary um, trial where someone's trying to repeat the results and they had a better randomization? That's definitely one way to test it. Mm -hmm. uh, the problem with that is usually when a company developing a drug, this is proprietary, and uh, the, the rules of uh, free uh, open science, free for all, don't really apply. Uh -huh. So I feel, especially as I said, personalized medicine in this type of uh, approach to target disease is very new. Mm -hmm. uh, I do believe there's regulation that needs to be put and protocols that need to be developed specifically for this type of trials. 
but mm -hmm. uh, as a whole, it's not bad to use target groups, especially when we're talking uh, about personalized medicine that usually is drugs for a very, very specific type, subtype of the disease. Is there any required transparency on how they pick that particular test group? I'm not sure about this. Yeah, because I guess the against having no medical or biological background, really, uh, I come at it from a purely statistical point of view, and I'm thinking if I can pick my test cases, whether I mean to do it or not, how do I control for all these other hidden variables I might not know about? Oh, oh. Yes, there are, there are definitely established protocols for that. Mm -hmm. So you try to match, for obvious factors, uh, your uh, test and control group, uh, age, uh, ethnicity, sex, uh, are definitely things you want to, ch uh, to match them for. Sure. Um, yes, and th th these, are, uh, these, these protocols do exist, this happens. But if I wanted to be very pragmatic, I would say, well, age checking and gender and ethnicity, these are very nice. But if I'm going to do a genetically based test, then any one random based pair in the whole genome is fair game to say, you know, your test group was all the people who had A and this test group was all the people who had G, which is, is kind of silly, right, in a way. But who's to say that? there isn't some segment of the genetic code you have to control on. And at that point, you could control on, you know, a billion different base pairs. Okay, Kyle, I wish we actually understood the genome that well to do it. To my knowledge, <laughs> it's not possible right now. <laughs> I see. So it, it's unlikely anyone could be uh, doing funny business with their results, but perhaps lack of understanding might, uh, there might be some flag out there we could one day be looking for. Yes, for sure. So tell me a little bit more about the cellular pathways. I'm not too familiar with what that would be. What do you mean? So you said you identify the cellular pathways that are correlated with the disease, and then you go about finding a, medicine, uh, a, a drug that will help uh, prevent that cellular pathway. Is yes. That... This, this happens uh, with basic research. So I'm, a, I'm also a basic researcher. Mm -hmm. Researchers, so for example, I'm studying uh, the genomic response uh, to, to changing in the environment. Mm -hmm. And uh, by doing my nicely controlled experiments on the bench, I'm uh, aiming to figure out exactly, for example, in my work, how a specific change in the environment and specifically, I'm studying uh, the switch uh, in uh, nitrogen sources from uh, only proline to only glutamine, how this affects the, the response of the genome. This uh, is relevant to certain types of cancer because we know that the microenvironment in cancer, uh, in cancer cells is different. And uh, you proceed through that. So you make associations uh, of basic pathways that, when perturbed, give you a phenotype, as we call it, uh, mm -hmm. they exhibit the cells in the whole organism in a way that's similar to the disease. Mm -hmm. And uh, from there on, you, you go on to the, the trials we, what we talked about. And of course, this is the traditional approach. Gotcha. The new approach, the genomic approach, is to actually go straight in the disease, mm -hmm. 
sequence the genome of a thousand or so patients and find some association, some correlation between mutations and the disease. But of course, this, uh, as you obviously know, this uh, correlation doesn't mean that a specific mutation causes the disease, and this is very different. This is actually a different branch of personalized medicine, which is preventive medicine. We can know that uh, an individual who has the increased probability of uh, showing the disease, exhibiting the disease, mm -hmm. we don't know how it happens or why it happens, but we have these markers uh, that allow us to do this prognosis. Mm -hmm. And this is the case uh, that was very, I think last year, was it uh, with Agil the Agilinda Jolie case. She tested for a specific mutation that we know are associated with breast cancer. And she went on to preventatively uh, go on in a double mastectomy. This is actually something that what you're mentioning about taking a thousand patients and looking for genetic correlations. It's kind of always fascinated me because I know we don't, as you've been saying, perfectly understand genetics yet. So everyone is this really big data set of, of base pairs. And if you look at a thousand people, let's say, you know, you've confirmed they all have some particular disease. It seems likely that you could get a lot of false positives here. So maybe you'll look at that group and because you're looking at the whole genetic code, you're looking at everything. So what might first jump out is that in a coincidence, all of these people have really bushy eyebrows and you <laughs> discover the gene for bushy eyebrows. Or if it's not bushy eyebrows, it's toenails that grow really fast. There's so many characteristics here. Um, how can it be that you look at a large data set and find something that's correlated with high likelihood? Yes, uh, we are very aware of this problem and we do try and correct or approach the problem in a way that uh, minimizes this type one error. Mm -hmm. uh, a typical, uh, the, the most conservative approach is to do a Bonferroni correction to your data. Mm -hmm. Uh, also, very widely used is the permutation approach in which the actual uh, both control and test samples, uh, the genomes are getting randomized and we're trying to see how significant uh, our findings are based on that. Interesting. Uh, there are also, and there is a third approach which is really working the best when you have specific genes uh, affected because, as I said, only one to two percent of our genome encodes for proteins is genes, which is called the principal component analysis, in which right. you try to find your your familiar. Okay. Great. Yeah, but not necessarily every listener will be. So, if you have a a, a great summary, that might be helpful. Uh, yeah, in the principal component analysis, it's a type of a machine learning approach. Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. I, I would classify it as that. So what you do is uh, you try to find the grouping that minimizes the differences. Mm -hmm. Which type of grouping of the found mutations really makes the most sense? Let's put it in a very, very simple terms because sure. I'm not a statistician either. That's, I, I cannot really go into too much depth. Yeah, we could do a whole <laughs> show on PCA easily. <laughs> I, I'm surprised to hear you guys would apply the Bonferroni correction because it's so very strict. It seems like you'd never get results at all. Oh, but we do. Just increase your sample size. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you do. Also, having uh, said about Bonferroni correction, this is actually now a little old fashion to do it uh, plain as it is. 
actually it's usually combined with the linkage disequilibrium study, which is now more biological. Uh, it has to do more with the, how the genome is organized. Mm -hmm. So what we know, and I'm not going to go into the why and the mechanism, sure. but what we know is that mutations that are close together in the genome, physically close together in the spring of DNA, actually tend to coincide more frequently. Mm. So we use this linkage disequilibrium approach in which we divide the genome in blocks of linkage disequilibrium and on that uh, we can get much better data out of that. Mm -hmm. So there's this uh, movement now, or I don't know if it's a movement, but it's becoming less and less expensive to do some personal genomic work. I think the current price uh, for sequencing your whole genome, I think we have just hit the mark of $1,000 per genome with some uh, company freaks, I have to say, but it's a reality. You can do it. Oh, that's not bad at all. <laughs> yeah. So what advantage does that give me in personalized medicine? It, I, you know, I, I'm not a rich person per se, but I have $1,000 I could certainly spend. Uh, what benefit would I derive from having that done? Uh, there are very few diseases. Uh, as I said, it's the very early stages of uh, this, this, this discovery. The, the, we do have some associations of specific mutations with diseases. So you could potentially preventatively uh, know your risk, not preventative, you could potentially know your risk for uh, a small group of diseases that we currently understand better. Mm -hmm. The truth, however, is that I don't really think you have much to gain as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps it's a good investment for the future if you can say spare the money now. Sure. Later on, it might, might be good, but uh, I, I don't think there's much to gain right now. Mm -hmm. So I, I know the as you were mentioning, the Human Genome Project wrapped up, um, and so the what I hear in the press release is, oh, we've sequenced the whole human genome, but. They didn't sequence mine, so uh, what am I missing there? Whose did they yeah. sequence, or how do I have it mistaken? So the genome project was, uh, the goal of, uh, of the genome project uh, was uh, to actually read the DNA. We had no idea how the DNA is organized in position one, mm -hmm. what you are usually expecting to find. So. The genome project gave, gave us, if you want, uh, the control on which ah. we can base all the other findings. Now, following the genome project, there is another uh, big collaborative project that has not got so much attention in the mainstream media, which is the HACMAC project, uh, which actually was aiming to specifically identify the most commonly occurred, occurring mutations. Oh, the genome project just gave us a template. On that, we start to understand what are the frequency of common mutation, not disease associated, because you also want to know that in order to infer disease. Mm -hmm. And now we're entering finally and slowly this um, mapping of, muta of common mutation is getting completed. Now we start to, 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 mo uh, to study more in depth the disease-causing mutation and understand that. Ah, that makes sense. So I have, maybe this is a bit of a conspiracy theory, but 
it seems like the very wealthy or maybe even just the you know first world countries can do a lot of sequencing work which i assume a project like the human genome project they take some broad sample as best they can and use that for the baseline um but it could be to say that someone's underrepresented, whether that be people who can't afford participation or people who are living in third world countries. Does that mean that people of their genetic lineage will be uh, at a disadvantage in the future for medicine? So the HAPMA project, which I just mentioned, which mm -hmm. uh, aims to identify the commonly occurring mutation, actually did try and in, did include different ethnic groups. Mm -hmm. uh, but what you're saying is absolutely correct. There is an issue with who gets sequenced in order to get this baseline mm -hmm. base, uh, on which we can base the future findings about uh, disease uh, frequency. We already know that different ethnic groups have different uh, frequencies in genes. For example, uh, the, the blood types. Mm -hmm. The frequency of the different blood types varies between Asian, African, and uh, Caucasian. Mm -hmm. We know that. And this is the same for many other diseases. Uh, also, something that's not very frequently mentioned is that there also, what is really understudied is the differences between the male and the female SNPs. Mm -hmm. And there is some discussion about that now, because although we try to study all the different ethnic groups, uh, still, I, as far as I'm aware, they're mainly focusing for men. For a very oh, good weird. scientific reason, What's there's that? a very good scientific reason that uh, men are the only people who have the Y chromosome, and we need to study that too. So mm -hmm. it has very little genetic material, of which the majority is actually the same as in the X chromosome, and we're talking about a handful of genes that uh, make the X unique. So in preparing, I found this article on New Scientist I want to pull a quote from. Um, they say that in a 2012 Harris poll of 2,760 U.S. patients and physicians found that doctors had recommended personalized genetic tests for only 4% of patients. Is this just a case of slow adoption or is it um, early adopters that are avoiding a high that you know can afford a high cost or is this a genuine criticism of efficacy? I think... It uh, has, has to do with uh, slow adoption. Mm -hmm. You can all, I can imagine that uh, the doctor in the little uh, fishing village in Greece I grew up in <laughs> will not be very familiar <laughs> with yeah, yeah. advanced technologies. But also, as I said, our knowledge is still very limited. And although, as, uh, even if we are getting uh, better and better in, under in understanding the underlying mutations uh, in, in the gene, the, the, the mutation in the genome of afflicted people, we're not so good yet in understanding what it means. Mm -hmm. And so there's usually not much we can do. For example, we know right now that there are many different underlying causes for autism. Uh, genetic causes for right, autism, right. but uh, in the absence of uh, appropriate treatment, ordering the test will not really help the patient. Ah, yeah, so all it is is detection then at this point. Yes. Interesting, yeah. Um, so one of the strengths I've heard of personalized medicine is that it can be predictive and therefore proactive compared to traditional medicine, which tends to be 
reactive, but in personalized medicine, something can be detected and you have a warning to maybe adjust behavior or take some preventative measure. So if someone were to go down that pace or path or if personalized medicine opens up that opportunity, how can we be sure of the you know large universe of possible diseases and problems a person can be affected with? How do we isolate the ones that a person needs to genuinely worry about? In other words, if I go to the doctor and the doctor says, we ran your genome, you're susceptible to a hundred different ailments. Make these 500 adjustments to your behavior. I'll, I'll never be able to do it. But if the doctor says you're at risk for one thing, maybe I can make one adjustment. Yes, uh, these, all these numbers and all these correlations come with a probability. Uh-huh. So I think that's uh, what you should be looking into. What's the probability of this mutation actually in the future show, uh, for a person with uh, A or B mutation actually in the future showing the disease? If the probability is 90%, then you probably do something, even if it's two or three mm-hmm. the, uh, mutations of this type. Uh, if the probability is very low, perhaps you want to consider uh, your alternatives. I think this is definitely a thing uh, for the patient to discuss with their doctor. Mm-hmm, Again, I will bring the example of Angelina Jolie and her double mastectomy. Some right. people still, this was, def- this was the doctor's recommendation. She had a very, she had a history of breast cancer. She did the test. She found the mutated BRCA2 gene which is a very, very, which has a very good probability of actually exhibiting the disease in the future. Mm -hmm. And still there is controversy of whether she was too drastic or not. Yeah. So these are all uh, ethical dilemmas, moral dilemmas that uh, we should be discussing, but there's no answer really. At the end of the day, what I think is, it's uh, the the individual and the individual's quality of life that uh, is in stake here, you cannot force treatment to someone who cannot have it. Right. In the same way, you cannot force preventative medicine to someone who cannot have it. These are not contagious diseases. It's different with uh, some transmitted agents that actually can uh, cause a problem for a bigger group, for the society, for, for all of us. Yeah, like typhoid Mary type situation. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's. I, I really think it's. It there is a gray area there, and at the end of the day, if the patient considers that uh, his or her quality of life is going to be so adversely affected by the treatment, uh, perhaps for him or for her will be best course of action not to do it. And as I said, I'm not a doctor. Right, this right. is a decision to be made between the doctor and the patient. Absolutely. Um, so maybe we could jump a little bit and talk about how this concept of big data can help advance personalized medicine. Yes, big da- personalized medicine is big data because, as I said, we are, uh, the genome is uh, 3 billion bases, mm-hmm. three, uh, we, uh, doubled that because we have one copy of our father and one copy of our mother. Mm-hmm. And when we actually sequence, we need to sequence in great depth because the, we have a sampling issue there. You want to make sure that you have covered the whole genome. So usually we sequence in a coverage of 50 or 100 texts. 
So that already is a hundred x six billion, and that's just for one individual. Mm-hmm. That's uh, huge. The control group will typically consist of a thousand individuals, and then you have the test group. Do the math. This is all big data. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I often argue with people about what big data means, but uh, I lost the arithmetic there. So certainly we can say genomics um, uh, fall into this realm. Maybe they're the best example of it. Um, so do you have any, are, are you at all close to in your work, the tools and technologies that are helping support these things? Yes, uh, that's what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm actually uh, sick. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not working with humans. Uh, I'm working with a humble yeast, which is, however, a great. <laughs> uh, it's a great model. It's uh, one of the. It's the most primitive. One of the most primitive uh, model uh, systems we have uh, for, for for humans. Mm-hmm. For, for us, it's a eukaryote, and this is big, but it's also simple enough and allow allows us. Uh, to understand uh, some basic uh, fundamental uh, pathways and fundamental uh, functions of the genome. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have talked a lot about uh, genome sequencing. There are different ways uh, that personalized medicine can be addressed. Uh, It's not only sequencing the genome for mutations. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is also understanding the epigenome. Uh, which is information laid upon uh, on top of the genome to modulate or modify how the actual gene is going to be expressed. To give you an example, based strictly on genomics, one would expect twin uh, siblings uh, from uh, the same oocyte. How you call monozygotic? Uh, I, I, I can't define it, but I do know the term monozygotic, yeah. Yes, uh, you would expect them to have exactly to show exactly the same diseases and uh, to be a, to have a very similar life in terms of physiology and health. Right, right. However, not the case, and uh, we now know that epigenetics is influenced by the environment and the lifestyle and modifies the information in the genome. So this is another level uh, of information that is used that is utilized uh, for in order to understand the causes of disease and, uh, in extension, develop personalized uh, medicine drugs. And I have worked on that. Another thing is, uh, as I said, there is regulation in every gene. So one gene might be mutated, but if, uh, for example, there is another gene that that has a function very, very similar to the gene that is mutated, Mm-hmm. Perhaps it can take over and uh, it, the, the, the function and can actually make amends for, for the bad gene. Uh, this is uh, usually understood through RNA sequencing, not DNA sequencing. And we are also me- uh, with RNA, RNA is the molecule that is the intermediate between mm-hmm. the encoded information in the DNA uh, and the actual protein that is going to have a function in the cell. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, that's why it's also called the messenger RNA. It takes the right. information from the chromosomes and takes it to the ribosomes where uh, protein synthesis happens. We also, so 
we know that uh, in a disease, it's not only that the gene might be affected, but also the expression levels of the gene might be affected. The RNA levels of the gene might be affected. Yeah, help, um, help me understand that a little more. Like, I know when we say a gene is expressed, that means how it goes, how it sort of manifests itself in, in the person's biology. But what will regulate that up or down? As I said, only one to two percent mm-hmm. of our genome is uh, is genes. Mm-hmm. The rest is either stuff we are, we don't understand or stuff we understand, but we have no clue why, what they're doing there. Or there are regulatory sequences. These mm-hmm. are sequences in front of the gene. It's called the promoter, and uh, this is what tells the cell. Now this gene is going to be expressed and it's going to be expressed highly because you have to think that every cell only has two copies of every gene, one from mm-hmm. the mother and one from the father. But every single gene has the possibility of making thousands or millions of RNA molecules. Mm-hmm. How much of that RNA is going to, to make or what flavor of that RNA is going to be made depends on these regulatory sequences. Gotcha. So would it be fair to say that then the environment kind of influences how the promoters are going to make the genes? Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. This is absolutely correct. So help me understand that a little bit. Because um, from a naive perspective, I think of, well, my genes are pretty much fixed at birth. Uh, what does it matter if I live in New York or L.A.? How does, you know, there's more smog here in, in L.A., but the smog doesn't go into my genes, I don't think. What? What is it environmentally yeah. that really has the effect? In biology, by environment, uh, we don't mean the environment in sense, the air we breathe or the water we drink, mm-hmm. which also is very important. And we now start to be able to approach these effects. Uh, but uh, you should think in a very, very microscopic level, environment is what's around the cells. Got it. And of course, what's around the cells is affected by by what we eat, what we breathe, and we add, and what we drink. Mm-hmm. But uh, this correlation is a little uh, too distant for us to fully comprehend now. All we have found is uh, certain correlations between uh, specific foods and disease and mechanisms. In one or two cases, like folic acid, the pregnant women mm-hmm. are now all taking folic acid. This we kind of understand what it does and has to do with epigenetics. Although we're not 100% sure it can be acting in many different levels, we understand one of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, transferring from the big scale, the macro, macrocosm, uh, our environment, to the biologically relevant environment right. is really hard right now. Yeah, makes sense. So it, to my ears, it sounds like we're very close to the, to the pioneer stages in genetics and epigenetics. Is, is that fair? Yes, absolutely. If you had to, I know this is a big question, but where do you see things being in 10 years, 50 years, 100 years? Oh, 50 years, and uh, we thought that the genome project would not be completed until, I think that if I'm not mistaken, it started uh, sometime in the 80s. That sounds and right, yeah. We, and uh, we thought that we, not, we would not be able to complete it until the mid, uh, like 2010 or 2020. That's, the, that's what they had uh, estimated. Mm-hmm. And that was absolutely true. 
through for the, the technology back then. Ah. But the actual project ignited a lot of innovation, and now I we see. ended up having the $1,000 genome. So it's very hard to predict what's going to happen in a long period of time. I think what's going to ha uh, what seems to be happening for the next 10 years is a lot of uh, genome-wide studies, a lot of uh, personalized studies aiming, trying to address personalized medicine questions. Mm -hmm. We also have uh, the metagenomics, which is uh, sequencing uh, the microbes that live within us and are very useful. We kind of knew that, but we never realized how useful they are. And we never really realized how they can actually cause disease if uh, mm -hmm. the balance of that ecosystem inside us is perturbed. So that's another thing that field that now has, uh, is booming. Of course, I already talked about epigenetics. I think there is one epigenetics drug in the market now. Don't ask me names. <laughs> um, Yes, I think these uh, these fields are definitely going. We're going to be very surprised with the findings in this field. Yeah, so uh, we talked a little earlier about how some of the analysis that's done is just about looking at a large sample population and looking for correlations, uh, you know, of people afflicted with some disease, and and hoping you find some correlation. If and when we end up with a better mechanical understanding of what the genes do, if we could read it more like we read source code or read a, a, a book and really understand what it's doing, perhaps one day we'd come to a state where we can build a nice simulation of it and we actually might not need as many clinical trials or we could simulate a clinical trial if we really had a way of um, a, a solid model that describes how genes will manifest in a person. Uh, do you think that's too science fiction, or is that a possibility? I think it sounds amazing. I'm also a fan of a science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say here, we have talked a lot of, a lot about mutations, and mm -hmm. uh, what we we now discuss is mutation in science is called SNP, single nucleotide polymorphism, which is exactly what what you said in the codon that encodes for a specific amino acid. One nucle nucleotide went wrong, and something wrong happened. It's the wrong protein. This is a, this is the technique of single mutation. But uh, there are more things that can happen. We can have microduplications or microdeletions or transpositions. Transposition is when one bit of DNA from one region goes to a totally different region with who knows what effects. Mm -hmm. So the system is much more complicated than really systematically permutating every single base in every possible combination. Right. Uh, and for that, it's, uh, it's a little hard to predict how soon we will reach the level that we will be able to really simulate and not, be, not need to, do, to go through the science. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, oh, one other point I wanted to ask, um, since... I suspect more people on the technology, big data, statistics, computer science end will listen to my program than people on the genetics end. And these are the people that are often building the tools that will enable the big data type work that uh, is going on in personalized medicine and other areas of biology. I was wondering if you could uh, say some of the open challenges or problems you're having that some of perhaps those more advanced listeners might one day be able to help solve. If any, uh, maybe that's too uh, open of a let question. Me, let me see if I something pops up. 
One big challenge right now mm -hmm. is uh, the region of the genome that does not encode information, which is the vast majority. And uh, there is a lot of effort, both from the biological bench and from the bioinformatics side, to try and understand what happens. People typically look for recurring motifs mm -hmm. of a sequence, which is a block of nucleotides uh, that come with certain probability in its position. Uh, this is not uh, very well understood. I mean, in the bioinformatics, it would be great if someone could come and scan the genome and identify recurrent motifs, which would allow us then to go in and look in more detail about functional correlations or functional similarities or even regulatory similarities of these regions. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, these tools are really not foolproof right now, mm -hmm. and we do need to go in the bench and uh, do it uh, physically and try to fish out specific regions that bind the specific protein that we're interested in. So yes, I guess one big, uh, as I said, uh, the regulatory regions are influenced by the environment. The mediator of this influence is uh, another protein. It's a little bit like the chicken and the egg paradox. So the genome makes proteins, and then the proteins regulate the genome. And in all of that, you have the environment kind of as an umbrella affecting what, what really happened. So the, we, we really don't quite understand how a protein with a specific shape we go and prefer to bind to specific promoter regions, specific regulatory regions that will affect this set of genes and not the other. Mm -hmm. Also, we have all these proteins that uh, uh, also how proteins interact to each other. This is, uh, it, it, this is really a mathematical problem mm -hmm. uh, of how the different uh, shapes with the different charges and amino acids and with different properties, we'll manage to interact with each other. If we manage to figure out exactly what happens there, and I know people are working a lot with simulations to do that, but it's not perfect. Sure. So if we could really understand how this interaction happened and how with small molecules we can target specific interactions, this small molecule is a great candidate for a drug in the future. Ah. And then you can imagine you have two proteins that are Normally, partners that are acting, that are found together, they are encoded by two, two different genes. Now, in disease, one of these two genes might have a single mutation that will change one single amino acid in the interface. Mm -hmm. the, protein, the proteins will still come as a dimer, will still bind to each other, but it will be a sick dimer, something that is going to cause a systemic problem. If we manage to predict exactly what is that that is going to disrupt this bad interaction, make it good again, mm -hmm. that would be great, great uh, drug, uh, uh, possible drug. Yeah. The step before that, because um, I think that's a separate thing, but were you talking about uh, essentially what they're trying to solve with the Folding at Home uh, project? Um, oh, yeah. This is a citizen scientist yes. Uh, project. Yes. Yes, exactly that. Yes. Yeah, I, uh, I don't fully get the problem yet, but I was talking to a, another uh, biologist, well, a chemist actually, and as close as my understanding I could get was that 
we understand the um, various states a protein can be in, but we don't well understand the tr- tr- uh, transitional model from how it gets from where it is to where it's going. Is, is that a, a, an accurate, if naive, way to put it? I'm a biologist, I'm not a chemist, so sure. my perspective perhaps might be a little different. And since we're talking about genes and genetics, so DNA with with the codons, mm-hmm. with each codon uh, encoding for a single amino acid as part of the protein, it's a single string. And everything is linear. So mm-hmm. by correspondence, the amino acids that make up the protein will one can imagine they are also linear, with, but this is not the case. Mm-hmm. The protein, the, the different, the 20 different amino acids combine different ways for each protein, and all this, of course, is encoded by the genome. What they really do is because they have different chemical proteins, uh, they don't stay in this random, relaxed, uh, linear state, but they tend to fall. Sometimes on their own, it's spontaneous. Sometimes they need other proteins to help them fold in the same shape, in the same correct conformation. And this is what makes the protein functional. Now, having mm. said that, proteins are not static, even in the folded form. Okay, so one cause for disease could be a misfolding of a protein. Mm. And this misfolding could be because of a mutation or because of some other environmental or other factor. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, most of the proteins, most of the enzymes in an organism don't have only one conformation, but they transition between conformation A and conformation B, and this transition is what makes them active. For example, mm. an enzyme and protein specializes in uh, destroying DNA. Imagine there's a Pac-Man head that unless the mouth can open and close, mm-hmm. it can never destroy that bit of bad DNA, which would be a virus, or the bit of RNA, which would be a virus. So, yeah, the, the system is complex, uh, going uh, even from the linear DNA information and all the permutations that can happen and be healthy, and then what type of permutations in the genome that are not healthy, mm-hmm. into going uh, how how this affects the protein, which at the end, the protein is what the cell cares for. Very, very few diseases are only confined in the DNA. It's really the proteins that are affected. Uh. As I said, uh, there are only 20 amino acids encoded by 64 codons. The, the n- nature is wise like that to allow for a few mistakes because they can be too costly. To wrap up the shows, I like to ask my guests to give two references or, or links of some kind. Um, the first I ask for is what I call a benevolent reference, which is something that's of no particular benefit to you, but highlights something you find valuable or interesting. And for your second, to something completely self-serving. Yes, yeah, sure. So I'm actually very excited about uh, the work done at the Simons Foundation here in New York. These people are really spearheading uh, for quite some time now the personalized medicine effort. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there is especially, there is a lot of interesting research that has yielded fruits uh, about autism and how actually autism uh, is a genetic disease and mm-hmm. we're trying now to identify so my first link would be that to the simons foundation which is www 
simonsfoundation.org and has great, they have uh, great writers there. They explain things very clearly or more technically if you're into that sort of thing. And uh -huh. I think it's a great resource to understand better where we're at right now and where we're going. Mm -hmm. As for the self-serving link, yes. uh, I'm actually, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm writing, I'm blogging about these things we're discussing now. Uh, it, mm -hmm. To be more accurate, I'm blogging about the technology that allows personalized medicine uh, to be a reality. It's called the... Uh, the technology is next generation sequencing, and you will find my blog uh, is hosted by Bitesize Bio. Mm -hmm. So the address would be bitesizebio.com forward slash profile forward slash Nikki N I K I dash Athanasiadu. So I will spell that for you. Please do. A T H A N A S I A D O U. And I'll also put both links in the show notes. So anyone who wants a quick cool. link can go to dataskeptic.com and uh, find it there. Great. Well, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for doing this. I really enjoyed uh, our conversation. I think uh, my listeners will too. Thank you very much too. for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah, same here.